I'm Coulter DeVries, owner of Ranch Investor Advisory and Brokerage Services. I'm an accredited land consultant with the Realtor Land Institute and proud member of ASFMRA. The Ranch Investor Podcast is the most downloaded and informative industry-specific content that intrigues while entertains. Well, Hugh, this episode of the Ranch Investor Podcast, I've been really excited about. So I have several peers, contacts that I've made through the Accredited Land Consultant Network. Uh, They are out of Oklahoma and Texas, and many of them have suggested that I reach out to Noble. And I'm very glad I did, because I've been watching your YouTube channel, and I just... I just love what you guys are doing. It's it's exciting. It's fun. Uh, your your media on YouTube is engaging. It's enjoyable to watch. Uh, just just a tremendous honor for me to have you on the podcast. So, Hugh Al Joe with the Noble Research Institute, thank you for coming on. Well, Coulter, it's a pleasure to be asked. Uh, you know, we've been looking at different. Uh, entities that are sharing podcasts and other information and we're just pleased and tickled just to have you ask us to be a part of it you've got a quite a following and we're glad to be uh, able to participate too and as i as i plug all these friends i have across the united states because of my my podcast and my my industry and i, I feel very fortunate to have these contacts but i do want to plug one of our listeners before we get started hugh One of your fellow Oklahomans has shared some of our stuff to her Instagram page. That is uh, Stacy Felker from Oklahoma. Looks like she is an accountant by day, a mother of two under two all the time. And I think she's a Wrangler model in the evenings. So thank you, Stacy Felker, for sharing some of our content. Content. Well, she sounds like she's a lot more interesting to talk to than I am, but I'm just <laughs> glad to be associated. I'm glad you said so, because we're going to get Stacy on to talk about her experience with ranching. Fantastic. Well, Hugh, tell me about the Noble Research Institute. How did it start? Well, the Noble Research Institute was created, founded by a oil man by the name of Lloyd Noble. Now, he named the, the Samuel Roberts Noble Foundation after his father, who he said was the most generous man he had ever known. And Lloyd, being a humble person that he is, what he really wanted to do and try to achieve is to is try to help producers of the time not only stay on the land, but to become more profitable. And his key interest was the land itself, the soil. So we were actually established to deliver solutions to great agricultural challenges, and we still do that today. But uh, he grew up, you know, he grew up in the... Uh, Early 1900s, saw the saw the Dust Bowl, became a successful oil man as he was flying across the the, the state uh, as an early pioneer of aviation. He was the you know he was looking at the the, the damaged land from uh, the erosion that had occurred and wanted to give back. And a lot of the people that worked in his oil fields came from you know what you'd expect farms and ranches. You know they they were the people that appreciated a day's work and a dollar's pay. So he wanted to do more for them because most of them were working in the oil field to help, you know, sustain their family on the farms and the ranches. Kind of, kind of the, brings to mind that old uh, <clears throat> the stereotype of the Okie just trying to make it. 
and he was, you know, he was, he was fortunate. His family had grown up, uh, having with a hardware store. He worked with his father and his uncle at the hardware store. A lot of the settlers, when, uh, the land could no longer support their, uh, their livelihoods, if they couldn't pay their bills, they would just turn the deed into the hardware store. And so you ended up with a lot of families and a lot of families that we know today that are probably land rich, but cash poor. And then, of course, uh, you know, when when one of the largest oil oil fields in the country was uh, founded right outside of Ardmore, Oklahoma, well, you know, they happened to be at the right place at the right time. He became a wildcatter at the right time, very successful, and uh, the rest of it sort of history to us. And you guys, you guys want to change that land rich, cash poor. You want to help people produce more income on the land they have, and you have. We'll get into several creative ways, enterprises that you're going about doing that. I want to pull up a quote from Samuel Lloyd Noble that I I just love this quote. It's it's uh, it really struck home for me. Someone I think I would have really admired had I known him in his time, and that is Samuel Lloyd Noble said, "No man can have assurance for himself and his posterity." living for himself alone. In order to have things for oneself, one must join in the defense of those same things for others. Yes. And boy, is that ever important today with freedom of speech kind of being tested. Well, and and Lloyd was not only an, an entrepreneur, but he was one that vested his time and energy into people and in resources. You know, he was successful as a as a uh, old man, because he invested in the people that not only knew how to work, but also that knew the technology that was necessary to continue to advance his cause. You know, he was willing to take a risk, although calculated, a risk for the betterment of of not only his own land, but also for the you know the the people that he's working for, working with or working for. He's just a just a great guy. He'd been one of those guys you'd love to. To, to know a lot more. And we're fortunate to have a lot of quotes like you just, like you, like you just said, uh, where he made statements that indicated what, not only what he wanted to do for people and mankind, but what we as a, a nation ought to be doing in order to support each other. And uh, to, to bring up another quote, Mark Twain said, farming is simply gambling with dirt. <laughs> I, I had imagined that uh, Lloyd Noble was no stranger to risk before he was a wildcatter. No, he he was uh, uh, he understood what the risk was, but he also knew that it took effort. You know, if you, you know, if you have a will, you probably are going to find a way to make it happen. And he was ingenious enough to be more successful than not. And I think what you guys are doing is taking some of the risk out. And I hope you have the research, uh, the economic data, and some of the, the accounting and financials to show that uh, when, you, when you diversify your operation and you're really trying to optimize every acre and you guys are in four, over 14,000 acres, I, I assume you're in different climates because Oklahoma has <laughs> four different dominant climates, it seems like, uh, regions. But it, when I watch your, your YouTube content, what you're doing seems to be taking a lot of risk out of agriculture. It seems risky at first bringing in sheep and goats, but when you can diversify 
your income and diversify uh, seasons of use, geographies, locations. Not that all producers can diversify that, but uh, diversify the species that you're harvesting, plant species that is. I think you are taking the risk out of agriculture, and that's that's another benefit you're providing today's producers. Well, most of our well, all of our our ranches are right here within our climate zone here in the south central Oklahoma. But what we do have is a diverse set of resources. You know, we've got some of these uh, ranches that are smaller in scale, but are all but are all introduced pasture. And then you you know for us that's Bermuda grass predominantly, and then we've got some some cropland that we that are that's grazed, and then we have what we have native range land, and that between the two we've got a you know not only a, a large amount of diversity, but the different sizes and scales of the operations. We feel like that we can pretty well represent what most people at least in the southern Great Plains can at least identify with relative to their own operations, and we have yeah you know, we we've we've tried some things here lately. We've been at let me let me back up and say we have always focused on land stewardship since the institute was founded. You know, going back to 1945, we've we've been here to help farmers and ranchers, you know, achieve their goals in land stewardship, livestock production, and economics. What we've done here in the last two years is we've decided we need to focus on the area where we feel like we can make the most difference in land stewardship, which is the soil itself. And when we really began to study what was needed with the with the soils, the land. You know, we had to do more than what we've done in the past, which would, you know, be make use of, uh, you know, a lot of the the fertilizers, which you look at the pastures, you know, they look good. But what are we doing with the soil, especially when we're using a lot of synthetic uh, application, synthetic fertilizers that we're, you know, we're applying on a routine basis. If we could begin to help the ranchers work with nature as opposed to either, and I'd loosely use enhance because we really aren't enhancing it but as we're trying to enhance production which is the only element that that we're really we're enhancing and we're trying to provide more back to the land to where we take a lot of the risk as you pointed out out of the system then we begin to work and understand how to work with the whole and that's what we've been doing over the last two years and when you start doing that you got to look at all, all the other enterprises it depends on what the resources themselves lend themselves to, then how we as managers take the entire resources and make optimal use of everything that's there and can continue to contribute back to the land so they can sustain itself and continue to build, as Lloyd Noble said, build up the soil over time. Let's start. We, uh, we're, we're starting to get into it there, Hugh, but I want to... Uh, give an overview, how many ranches, uh, I believe it's over 14,000 acres, um, do, you, do you operate at an economic profit, uh, positive cash flow? Tell me about the model and uh, how, how you go about implementing that. Well, as I said, as we started these last couple of years, we've really started paying attention to, you know, to the economics as well as the land stewardship aspects of it. We have seven different ranch entities that we operate. Within that, what we wanted to do is change that economic model such that we could begin to look at the return back to land, labor, and capital on those, uh, you know, on those, uh, each of these different operations. And then we, you know, ran right into this drought. So to say that all our properties are 
at at economic profitability at this point, we're we're probably well, we're not. But what I can say is, you look at these bigger operations that we have. We're running two, you know, two hundred fifty head of cattle plus, you know, stockers uh, retaining ownership on the calves. Those entities like that are, are relatively easy to have a positive return to land, labor, and capital. And where a lot of the biggest changes occurred is when we started working with nature and no longer adding the fertilizer and spraying the weeds on our introduced pastures. You know, in one 3,000-acre ranch, for example, we cut out $50,000 worth of fertilizer and another $15,000 worth of weed spray. Automatically, that puts us into the, you know, into the positive uh, side of a return back to land and, you know, land and labor. You know, we've just had to continue to look at how do we manage successfully because it looks a whole lot different than what it did uh, before. It looks a lot more like native rangeland. You get a lot more diversity. You end up trying to treat it like a, a native system, but we somehow we've got to make sure we're getting the nutrients cycling at the same time, which heretofore had been applied by fertilizer. Now we're trying to use the animals themselves, the natural attrition that occurs with the plant community and the diversification of multi-species grazing brings in order to apply a different type of fertility that probably going to be a lot more sustainable in the long run. So you, you have to take care of your animal. So that's a metric goal, a production goal you have would be potentially profit per pound sold. You have to take care of your land. So maybe a, a metric would be profit per acre. And, and then you got to take care of your, your bank account. So just cash flow positive. What are some of the metrics you're using when you, when you come up with a program that you're going to test and that you're going to implement and say, this is, this is the objective we're working towards. This is how we're going to measure it. Uh, because it seems like you could, you could rob from Peter to pay Paul. You can starve your cows uh to make make the bank account look a little better in the short term <laughs> you can overgraze the hell out of your land to make your cows look a little better in the short term how are you balancing this holistic i just can't wrap my mind around all these variables that you're trying to manage for and then and then make a statistically significant um analysis that what we are doing in the long term is working well it, it, it all begins by understanding the resources that you have to begin with you know the, for the first objective is we want to make sure that our stocking rate meets our carrying capacity and carrying capacity fluctuates from year to year season to season so we're managing from year to year but we've got to understand what we would expect from the forage supply based on the forages and the management that we're you know that we're uh, imposing on, on these lands. So we start with carrying capacity. We monitor our, our reserve herd days, you, you know, the number of animal unit days throughout the growing season. Are we building up toward what we should have by the time we get to frost? Do we have enough to carry us all the way into the next spring and preferably 30 days into spring? Now, I'll be the first to admit after this drought that we've had, we're probably going to be a little less than 30 days, but we have a stocking rate right now that we we set back in November once we got frost knowing that we've got enough forage to get us all the way into first of April and then we've got a 30-day reserve 
for you know the, the, those uh, weather conditions that we may have to to use it. But our objective or our goal would be not to ever use it. So first off, we get our stocking rate right, and then as we get into more favorable weather conditions, we will continue to improve and increase our stocking rate based on the actual growing the actual uh, forage that's that's actually grown. But you got to monitor that monthly to know where you're at relative to what you would expect long-term. So that's that's number one. Number two is when we set our budgets for for the for the year, we base it off of what do we expect to carry those, you know, the livestock that we, we've already got uh, planned based off of our, 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 our carrying capacity, what's going to make for an economic return within that operation? Now, it's our best guess, but uh, knowing what we would typically expect for a growing season, knowing about what we would expect from our, our, our market conditions on the livestock, how do we manage what we have what we're going to be able to grow such that when we get around to next year, next fall, we can sit there and say, well, we've got an option. Either we market the cattle that we have here at weaning or here after we get them weaned and, and preconditioned, or do we carry these cattle all the way over to next year into uh, the spring of the following year on winter pasture, because we're going to have some growing conditions. So we're always trying to look at not only what we want to plan for in a average year but we're also wanting to look at in a less favorable condition and then if it's more favorable what's our contingency plans either way so we've you know you, you more or less you have a one plan for the optimal and then you have contingency plans for something that's going to be favorable and something that's going to be less favorable so if you start out with the with the intent of having a profit you're more likely to manage for that profit so that's part of the part of the metrics and then as we're as we're doing our grazing management, we really get down into how do we become more efficient and how do we return more back to the land itself? So that's where we get into you know managing toward the you know six soil health principles. We want to make sure that we that we understand our context. What are our resources? What's the limitations thereof? Then how do we make sure that we keep the you know the, the ground covered at all times? Pretty easy when you got perennial pasture if you allow you know, plenty of it to, to, to grow up. And then when you graze it, you're not grazing it all the way to the ground, you know, back to that take half, leave half type principle. Well, early in the spring, you probably only want to take a quarter. You want to top graze and grow the grass up. So if you grow the grass up, we always have a higher quality grass later in the season. And we also have more abundance of it. And then if we're, if we're grazing it, where we're grazing it, like we, what we do under using high, High, high stock density grazing using the adaptive grazing management. We're also increasing our efficiency of harvest and the rate of recovery on all our acres too. So we get a greater efficiency than when someone would be would be continuous grazing or uh, have a weak grade. You know, you know, kind of a weak rotation is what I would call it. So all that begins to add up. And then of course you need, you still want to make sure that you, you minimize disturbance whenever we intercede or plant cover crops or small grains, it's always going to be with a no-till drill. You know, we're, we're, we're taking out a lot of the, uh, well, all the weed spray. We've taken out all the, uh, you know, the fertilizer at this point. We may come in and do a little bit of uh, amendments to get a starter fertilizer, but we want to make sure it doesn't become a crutch just to get something up and growing based on the soil Haney test that we're, you know, we're continuing to, to monitor from, from year to year and season to season on the cropland, you know, you know the forage cropland acres, you know, we're continuing to use the information that we can, we can collect readily in order to 
mirror that against the you know the soul health principles and make sure our practices always adhere to those soul health principles and the, you know the, you know there's there's several others but the other one that we that we've adopted here the last couple of years is diversity in the livestock you know we want to integrate livestock well and when you've got forbs or weeds you've got opportunities for things like sheep and goats and if you've got browse you have an opportunity for for goats and so we've added both of those to our, our enterprise list. Seems like you guys are doing something that is missed by extension. You, you are providing a service of value, providing research uh, in areas, maybe you can do it longer term because you're, you're a well-funded endowment, but uh, you're you're not doing what extension is doing, and granted, some of their projects they just don't have the funding for to to do long term studies. But is that part of the mission and vision here? Is to uh, the old Yogi Berra Yogiism hit it where they ain't. <laughs> well, you, first off, you know there are a lot of other entities that provide you, you know, a lot of benefit to the to our farming and ranching community. And one, we don't want to replicate what others have done, but what we'd like to be able to do is have more meaningful impact on the producers that we know that are want to, that want to be focused on land stewardship for improving soil health in, in our grazing lands. Now, we call that regenerative ranching ourselves. That's our definition. You know, no one else has coined that, uh, or would, you know, we'd expect them to coin for themselves, but that's what we, we call it because we want to improve the land through, you know, our grazing lands in particular through uh, you know, for not only for you know, for the grazing livestock, but also for profitability. So as we begin to put all this this together, we want to share that with producers. We're not doing it just because we you know because we we can. We want to make sure that we make this available to other producers. And so we're developing an educational uh, uh, set of educational products that will complement from you know what does it take to get started in this regenerative ranching or this land stewardship for improved soil health? What does that look like? Then how do you how do you apply grazing management because that's going to be your number one practice, you know if you look at, uh, at at the practices available to you in order to 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 follow the soil health principles. So let's how do we apply that to where people can begin to learn and move stepwise toward a more efficient, more effective uh, return on their operation. But it's got to be cost effective. So the next one probably needs to be the profitability aspects of the operation that we'll be that we'll be instructing on. And then it continues to grow. What is soil health? How do we continue to manage for soil health? You know, what are the what are the things we need to be a better understand in livestock adaptability or utilize, utilizing livestock within the, these systems and then continually measure that and monitor it over time? You got to have a plan then you got to monitor and manage the plan to, to change uh, your management such that you continue to improve at the most rapid rate. Because there's no such thing as you uh, getting over the, the line to say, okay, now I'm regenerative or my land's you know as good as it's ever going to be. Uh, we've never seen that yet, and I don't think any of us ever will. Are you are you producing annual reports that people we like will? Yeah, we, we yeah we we haven't until recently. You know, we're we're in the process of this year actually been able to collect all the information that we need to go back and, and determine not only the return to, you know, to, on the economic side, but also the reports on the livestock, the performance. You know, we've, we, we were set up uh, several years ago to, to mainly focus on just research projects, 
Well, research projects may or may not be applicable to most ranchers. What most ranchers always have to 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 uh, manage around is the conditions that Mother Nature, the you know the the uh, economics, uh, the climate, whatever it brings brings for you, it's never controlled. We need to be able to provide information based off of our management plans, our, our outcomes from our management plan, plans relative to the conditions that existed and let our ranch staff, our ranch managers be able to communicate what they did. And, you know, most peers, most ranchers out there would rather hear from someone that's their peer than they would someone that's supposed to be the expert anyway. So, you, you know, you've got yeah, you've got Noble, and we've heard it time and before. Well, you can do that at Noble because you got the you know you got the the people that've got all the degrees, and you got all that money. Well, that endowment's plenty big, but it's only good if we can use it to the benefit of the producers themselves. So we need to be able to use our lands as a uh, as a demonstration of what can be done to inspire other people to do what's best on their own lands, and then put them together with other producers that are striving to do the you know, do the same type of management they are achieving similar goals and let them, you know, sharpen their skills amongst each other and not be limited to us. We don't want necessarily, uh, we don't want that codependency with us. We want us to always have that complimentary, complimentary effect and continue to empower producers to be able to do more. And I think that if you go back to one of the extension models uh, as being is that we want, we've kind of wanted to give them an answer, give them the easy button. You know, we all want to, to uh, have that, uh, that that simple plan, you have to monitor and then adapt to whatever changes that, that are there. You know, Dwight Eisenhower said, you know, you know, a plan is worthless, but planning is everything. It's the exercise of going through what you think could happen and then being able to adapt readily to the changes that occur in order to get the outcomes. But before that, you better have a goal and it needs to be realistic. And it needs to be based on some good information. Hopefully, we can provide that to people that are in this regenerative journey with us. So this might be getting too technical, but if you're going to show a long-term profitability analysis and you have all these variables for animal health, animal husbandry, uh, land health, soil health, uh, drought, uh, seasonality, are you holding marketing static? Do you have one marketing plan where you kind of make that the, the locked variable and you keep that uh, just the same every year, year in and year out? Because marketing seems like, I mean, in the long term, I, I don't have any data to support this, but I would suspect that marketing is not going to make or break you. It's going to be your production practices, but it does, it does influence things a little bit. Well, you know, and I might beg to differ just a little bit. The marketing is probably a lot more important than we ever thought it was. Now, it all depends on where you're wanting to market. You know, if you're if you're if you're going to continue to work within the commodity market, you probably don't have a whole lot of flexibility. But what we're wanting to encourage people to do is consider what other options you have in marketing. Those that are more entrepreneurial, and I'll be the first to admit, I'm not very entrepreneurial myself. But you got we've seen where the individuals that are more entrepreneurial they can begin to retain these cattle all the way up through the finishing. And then all of a sudden, if they're marketing themselves, they've got a significant different return on their profitability to their entire operation than what the people that are just going to be moving their product into a commodity market. So we've got to look beyond the 
you know, see the obvious and see what the other opportunities might be. I mean, we've worked with people that found out they were better off using their land in a, in a leasing program to where they, they just received income revenue. And then they managed the grazing for the producers such that when it's time to get the cattle off, they have to leave. They improve their their land more rapidly. They end up with a, you know, a better cash flow. And then they also end up with a lot more net income because they don't have a whole lot of overheads. So you've got, you know, different formulas that, that, that can be effective, but we we've got to begin to look at what all those might be too often. We want to put ourselves in the business as usual as everyone else does. And if we're just part of what everyone else is doing, then oftentimes we better be really, really good on managing our cost more so than the revenues because your revenues are, you know, are basically whatever the market's going to be doing. And we've got some good years ahead of us. So we're going to, we could look pretty good as long as the costs don't get, get too far ahead of us, but what's going to happen when that market turns down again? Cause at some point people are going to rebuild their cow herds. We're going to have plenty of calves and we just know the supply and demand and what, what the economics does on the cattle cycle, you know, you know, with that supply and demand. So you're approaching it. I mean, truly holistically the, the entire whole of the aspect of livestock production, land and resource management, you're, you are not just selling 550 pound calves off the cow in October. You're actually looking at how does this program for land management, adaptive grazing, risk management, uh, stalker cow calf blend. Uh, what, what does that open us up to for better marketing opportunities such as retained ownership and you're really taking an alternative approach to marketing as well testing that rather than traditional marketing sell your calves in the cash market right off the cow yes sir and one of the things that we we've learned you know years ago we've been promoting for for a long time just retaining ownership you know if you if you if you're a little more conservatively stocked and you know that you can carry your cattle relatively inexpensively on forage for a longer periods of time after they come off the come off the cow. You've already got your investment in your bulls. You got investment in your health. You got investment in the land and the land management. So if you just have a few of those cows, and you know we every operation that I've ever been on, you could drop the lower twenty percent improve profitability immediately. So if you say you drop those lower that that twenty percent of your herd. Then you have an opportunity come most years, come weaning, that you can take that calf crop on a, out to a more favorable condition. So, you know, down here, most of the people calve in the spring, so they sell in the fall. So this fall is when we have the lowest calf prices all year. So how do you get out of that seasonal slump? If you just carry them 30 days, you get a little further out of it. If you go 60 days, you get even further out of it. But you got to you maintain your cost. Put a little in them keep them on a positive plain nutrition and not only are they no longer a calf they become a stalker so that increases the value of the calf again if you've got a little bit of winter pasture or the opportunity to carry those calves on up to a to a weight that uh, the uh, more conducive to going into the feed yard 850 900 pounds and you can do that cost effectively well then that gives you another opportunity for additional revenue so when we've worked with producers historically we've seen where they've come in and and kind of revamped their cattle program to where they had a defined breeding season, had a defined health program, 
a good set of bulls, a uniform set of cows, and ended up with a uniform set of calves that just by going into retain ownership, we could provide more net, and that's the key, more net margin to the operation through the stalker, the backgrounder and stalker phase, then they had a net return back to the cow-calf phase at the sale of the calf, or if you take the value of that calf at weaning. Now that, you know, you've taken one calf crop and you sometimes doubled, for some people, tripled their, their income or at least got them from negative to positive. That's big on, on, on operations. So just being able to, to, to manage that capability is wonderful. And then the second benefit, what if you get into a drought? You already have a built-in safety valve. You just don't keep the calves that year. All you have to do at that point is sell your calves because you don't have the forage available to you. You already have a built-in drought plan. So it can help you both ways. Now, you get those years when you got really good years, maybe you increase your calf crop, or you maybe you take your neighbor's calves that has similar breeding and similar genetics, and all of a sudden you've got a greater pool of cattle to be marketed later on. It just provides you options. Well, that, that is a University of Wyoming study. Uh, they, they showed over 10 years, a blend of cow-calf and stalker, a mixed operation, is far more profitable than just cow-calf. They, they came up with 60-40, 60% of your <laughs> capacity should be cow-calf, 40% stalkers. And the stalkers are a built-in drought management plan, but you're also utilizing the steepest part of the growth curve on an animal from 650 to 950 pounds. So yep. why, why let some other guy make the profit on your calf? I mean, well, you've been through the most expensive part of producing that beef. Why let someone take it through the least expensive part of producing that beef? That's right. And then you start thinking about what you, what you as a cow calf producer, you know, you have the cat, you have the capital items of the, you know, the breeding herd. You know, the cows, you you know, that's the factory. You've got the bulls. You know, that's where you're putting your investment. Go ahead and optimize that investment, you know, further into the supply chain. And then, you know, and then you have the individuals that are large enough and they know the genetics well enough. Then, depending on what the market is, you may consider carrying those, those calves on through the feed yard. Or, you know, as we're finding, uh, further on pasture to finish them on pasture can be an opportunity for some, but it's back to, do you have lot load sizes that can be marketed at the same time? So there's some limitations, you know, you've just got to understand where you fit within, within the uh, uh, scale, but there are opportunities out there. And when people, we start putting these people together in these peer groups, I think what you're going to find is that you're going to see some midsize or smaller type producers begin to come together and work collectively to have a similar outcome for operations to where they can get better, you know, greater marketability of their calf crop later in the, in the supply chain. So what is, what is working? What have you, do you, you bring up a peer group and that was my next question. Are you benchmarking using data from USDA or the farm credit system? Do you know where you stand relative to your neighbor? And you can say, yes, uh, this, this is working. Um, how does that look, uh, relativity? Well, it, it, we're, we're just beginning that, you know, that, that information collection. What we want to be able to do this year is start our educational efforts, renew them in toward, you know, this regenerative focus. And then the next step will be, 
is as we begin to have these educational groups, you're going to have, for lack of a better word, classes of individuals that now they're in this peer group that can begin to build and grow. Then what we'll do is take that demographic information of those individuals, and over time, we will be able to put them into what I can consider can, can I would consider their contemporaries, size, goals, resource-wise, and let them begin to work together and let us facilitate some of those discussions with them, and we want to be able to benchmark them at the same time. We're just now putting all that together, but you make a good point. That's where it's going to be valuable. You you look at uh, um, there's a there's a you, you know the ranching for profits you know Dallas Mountain the work that they're doing Dave Pratt did before that you know just great great resource but you look at what they're been they're able to achieve with their producers uh, being able to benchmark the information they do have is just wonderful and it, it replicates what we've observed in our own experiences here at Noble and then you've got you know the you know the ranch consultant services down in in Australia you know they've got a tool that they call farm I E Y E, you know, like a, a profit probe type tool. If we can begin to work with entities like that, and that'd be part of our intent, then we can begin to bench benchmark and have useful information similar to what the spa information uh, was, uh, is, has been accumulating over the years. Spa is just, it's pretty difficult to, to put it all together, but you have it in quartiles. You understand kind of where you are relative to the different key performance variables that are within that. I think producers are eager to know where they are relative to their contemporaries. And that's the thing. The spall sometimes is difficult to tease out where you are within your contemporaries. But if we can do that and provide them, there's they have a better understanding what realistic goals are for their operations going forward into the future. But you got to have some data and you got to have data meaningful, not only to 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 the to the rancher but also meaningful to the industry so that we can see what direction we can help guide producers. Ultimately it's their decision, but we need good information and there's just a lack of it within the regenerative space as of yet. Now, when you guys sit out uh, and try to plan this out, you, you have a large team, a big board. Do you, do you look at five-year goals, 10-year goals? Do you do smart goals, strategic, measurable, attainable, realistic? time sensitive. Um, what, what kind of planning goes into this and how long are you committed to a certain project? Well, in, internally, we, we're developing those plans uh, over the last couple of years. And our plan is to continue to renew our goals over time. Every year we're setting out for ourselves internally goals for the year, as well as what do we want to achieve relative to the long-term. So we have long-term and short-term goals. You know, long-term, one of the things we'd like to be able to do by 2040 is to have a positive impact in uh, toward regener you know, toward a regenerative outcomes on uh, 84,000 for, for 80,000 farmers and ranchers, over 164 million acres. And we'd like for at least 75% of these producers actually showing, demonstrating a uh, that they're meeting their financial goals, but it's not just us. We want to be able to be a part of that that uh, uh, nucleus of regenerative advisors that are out there. I mean, you've got Understanding Ag, you've got Ranching for Profits, you've got HMI and the Savory Institute. You've got some really great entities out there that are all contributing toward you know those type of outcomes. But organizationally, we have our own goals. We continue to build and, and morph on those. 
I think what we'd like to do is we, we begin to work with these producers and establishing their goals. They need to have a short-term plan, but they need to have that long-term goal. What is it they want to achieve knowing that they may need to adapt it once they get into this regenerative planning? You know, one of the things that we, you know, a goal is nice to do is help set us a target. But what do you do when you find out that target may not be the, the ideal target for your operation? And I think that as we begin to, to, to use uh, these other entities, we begin to work in these peer groups, we begin to better define what are the opportunities for uh, you know, different operations and how they can become more successful, not only in the short term, but in the long term. Right. So what, what happens when, you're, when your goal might not be the appropriate um, direction you need to take? Because that makes me think of, I like the double bottom line. I just like seeing that number in the black. And yep. I like seeing it get bigger and bigger on the double bottom line. And I would suspect that if you guys, in your enterprise analysis, you, if you looked at your GOAT enterprise, you'd say, well, this is more profitable per acre, more profitable per pound produced. Uh, let's just sell all the cows, all the stalkers, all the sheep, and let's run 60,000 goats on our 14,000 acres. And boom, that we are profit beyond profit. We're doing way better than any other enterprise. So what's, what's the problem with being data-driven versus data-informed? Well, if you just were data driven only, you know, these trends can be, could, depending on where we are within any cycle at any given time, can be misinforming the total outcome. You know, the, you know, the, the thing with, the, with uh, being data driven, we want to make sure that they're aligned, you know, the data that we're collecting aligns with the goals that we're, we're setting to achieve. You know, ultimately, we'd like to have improved profit per acre. That's the bottom line. But if we just took each of those enterprises, as you described it, where you look at the goats compared to the cattle, the goats look a whole lot more profitable. The fact is only part of that resource can really be utilized by goats very well. The other part of it is that we know that the livestock, the bigger the animal is, the more, and I don't, you know, not, not that I'm saying we need 1500 pound cows, but a cow versus a goat. If you've got a, a cow versus a goat, she's going to have a different type of impact on the land. And so you've got to look at the, again, back to the whole. You know, the goats provide a different forage that can be turned into a product. They're eating browse predominantly. Now, they're going to eat grass this time of year and in certain, you know, certain periods of time when there's not as much uh, browse that's out there. But we'd like to work that into, comp, you know, into a complementary system to where it's not only profitable, but also providing those nutrients back to the soil. And a lot of people forget that, you know, sheep and goats eat a little different diet. So if they're eating a different diet, they've got a different manure composition they're adding nutrients that a lot of times cattle are going to be missing out or, or they're not going to have that much nutrient in the diet on some of the micro and and uh, uh, the lesser ma macronutrients so those are the things we've got to be able to do and it, collectively it tends to enhance the the program as a whole so we want to be able to, to use data that actually inform us are we moving toward our goal and then how do we use that data that when conditions change we get into a a uh, point where let's say that we're using these goats, but now all of a sudden we no longer have as much browse as we want to, as, as we would like to, to achieve, because we may have wildlife goals as well. How do we be, how do we go back to maintaining that balance? 
And that's where the, you know, for us being data driven based toward goals and then being adaptive toward the, you know, the, the changing conditions, economic, environmental, all that feeds into what makes the most sense in this next season that we're trying to manage toward. And we're continuing to do that. That's, you know, if we just left it just on the data that we have, it's going to be obsolete. And so if, if it's all focused on just the absolutes of the data, you know, at some point we're going to be wrong. We may be right for a, short, for a period of time, but it's having the ability to, to adapt to change conditions is where, you know, successful managers uh, excel at. Well, this is all very complex because you even touched on cow, cow size, body size, and how that plays a part in your profitability and your, land, your ability for land resource management. All complex, Hugh. This is, it is so um, multivariate. It's frustrating to think about. I'm overwhelmed. Uh, why, why go through all of this? Why can't we just have a system where you have mega ranches producing as optimally as they can and then hobby farms? Everyone else is a small acreage hobby farmer. What, what's wrong with that dystopia? <laughs> Well, you know, the, the, there are plenty of hobby farmers where, you know, we're part of the part of the country. We see, you know, we see quite a bit of it and yeah, it has a negative impact, you know, on, on our industry at times, because there's just a lot of the, uh, you know, say that there's a lot of other, uh, uh, make sure I say this uh, correctly. You, I'm not got always a lot of, on here. Don't, don't okay. worry. Okay. Well, you've got, you know, you've got other industries that are solely supportive on, on the mismanagement of, some of these smaller hobby farm type producers, you know, that they, they're making a living doing this and, you know, you know, it makes for a better product. We, we end up with better livestock because of it. But if we look at what the needs are for the nation long-term, you know, there are 640 million acres of grazing lands in the United States of that 70% are in a degraded condition. There's another 391 million acres of cropland of which probably almost 90% of that's in a, in a degraded condition. There's a lot of room for improvement in our industry. And it's going to be the people that are the bigger leaders, seed stock producers, the larger commercial operations. They influence more acres than anyone else and the product that's being raised on it. So these are the guys that are going to lead our industry. And we hear about all the woes of the greenhouse gases. And where is this coming from? You know, most of the greenhouse gases are coming from every, all the other segments of the, uh, of, uh, of the industry, uh, of the, the nation, other than agriculture. Agriculture is only 11%. So you've got another 89%. So it's basically coming through manufacturing industry and people. But yet 11%, it's all going to be, you know, where we're, the bottom line is only these agricultural lands and predominantly these grazing lands are the only lands that can sequester carbon. As we better manage these lands more regeneratively, we end up with more forage production ultimately. You know, you're going to get more water holding capacity. You're going to get more forage production. You can run more livestock. But more importantly, we're removing even more greenhouse gases to the, from society. So if we can capture more carbon into the soil and the land itself, we better our environment, we better our water, we water supply, we better our air supply, 
and we have happier and happier happier families that are out there on the land. But it takes the leaders, the leadership to be able to do it. And it's going to be the larger producers that set the expectations for the future so that others can follow. And it's always been that way. You know, so we've got to be sure that 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 land stewardship, regenerative land stewardship becomes not only important for our leading cattle producers, then we also have got to be able to communicate what that means toward for you know for the others that are producing livestock of any kind and society itself. We're part of the solution, not the problem. Hugh, what did I miss? This has been very insightful, and I know you've got a you got a piece of paper there in front of you, <laughs> talking points and outline. What I tried sounding intelligent for 30 minutes and I might've made it 20. Uh, we still have some time left. What are, what did I miss that you'd like to get out there and be known? Yeah. You know, one of the things that, that at Noble, we are, we, we want to be a part of the, the greater community. You know, we, if you, if people want to follow us there at Noble and www.noble.org, they can sign up for our Noble Rancher. It's it's a weekly e-newsletter that tells us, you know, typically it provides a you know some sort of little caption that would be important for you know producers to 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 say understand, know a little bit more about. It also will be the source where we're going to be communicating what our educational opportunities will be into the future and what other opportunities we might be doing relative to the research that we have on our farms and ranches. We want people to be connected with us, and we'd like to connect with them. And in doing so, uh, that's probably the the source to do it. Now, you can follow us on some of the other uh, uh, YouTube, uh, other channels. I'm not a social media person, but we, if you get on our website, it'll, it'll tell you how you can follow us. But I think we, we really want people to know that through our educational efforts, through all our ranching and our research, we want to contribute back to the producers themselves, back to what Lloyd Noble wanted to, us to do as, an, as a foundation when he, when he created us back in 1945. Return something back to the producers and rebuild the land itself. In order to do that, there's a lot that we have to, we have to take into consideration. But you know, in the words of you know, Mr. Laster years ago, he says, ranching is simple. The, you know, the challenge is keeping it simple. And I think we've got to go back, take a look at the resources, try to look at the whole and begin to work together as a, as a group of concerned land stewards and uh, rebuild the land together. But it's going to take all of us. There's a place for us all. We just have to work together and hopefully they're noble through our educational uh, efforts through our peer networks we'll be able to provide uh, back to the community itself the agricultural community in particular and you say you're not a social media person but i think the audience listening in would they would enjoy seeing you do the latest tiktok viral dance so <laughs> if if you well, al joe could start a tiktok account and then do those very, very absurd dances that TikTokers do. I think that'd just be wonderful. <laughs> well, I'd, I'd probably be dis disowned by my my entire family if I did it. And they don't <laughs> even let me sing in church, so you know that kind of tells you what my talent level is. <laughs> How about the uh, Nobles' mission, vision, and values statements? 
Well, you know, well, share. yeah, well, it, and it is, you know, what we're here, what, what we're here to do is to achieve land stewardship for improved soil health and grazing animal, animal production with lasting producer profitability. That is what we're trying to achieve and help producers achieve themselves. You know, why do we exist? You know, the main reason why we exist here is to assist farmers and ranchers as they, re, as they regenerate the land in a profitable manner. You know, it's, it's all about improving the soil and in and their profitability you, that's what we're that's what we're going to be focused on that's what all our resources are going to be geared to hopefully people will want to come and, and be a part of that and hopefully we'll be able to show them something with a, with meaningful data from production through improvements in the land to profitability in the very near future well Hugh thank you for your time um I, I really enjoy the YouTube channel, so I recommend anyone get out or pull those up and, and watch the YouTube videos. Those are done very, very well. And, uh, you know, with, with Stacy Felker, the, the Wrangler Jeans model being there in Oklahoma, maybe she can stop by one of your ranches and do the TikTok dances for you guys. Well, I would rec highly recommend that. I'm sure you'd get a lot more positive <laughs> reviews than if I did it. So, you know, I think the whole audience would highly recommend that. <laughs> well, you just have her come by anytime. We'll, we'll even use our video uh, crew to help uh, facilitate that. <laughs> Hugh, I'd love to, I'd love to come visit in Oklahoma. Um, do you guys, do you have site visits and like field days? Well, we will. That's the, if we get into the spring, it will be a really good time to, to come visit. But for, for you, Coulter, if you want to just invite yourself you know, we will be happy to tour you around, just show you what we're doing. And maybe you can have a live podcast from our, from our, from one of our stations here. That'd be wonderful. I'd appreciate that. We'll stay in touch on that, Hugh. Thank you. Is there? Yes, sir. I, I, I'm terrible about wrapping up these podcasts. Is there a good way to wrap this up that maybe some, some positive, positive feelings like, Hey, Noble is doing awesome things and there's optimism for the future. And if you're excited or passionate about what you heard, uh, go out and go out and just start cutting your teeth. Just try it. Just get it done. Well, we, we have a saying that you, you, you know, you're not, you're never going to make any progress sitting still. If you're sitting still, you're wrong. So, you know, safe to learn, go after, you, you go after regenerative ranching. If you, if this is something you want to try, Take your best land. Doesn't have to be at all. Well, we typically say if you've got your, you know, your front pasture that's really productive, you know, you're going to pay a lot more attention to it. You're going, to, you're not going to let it fail. And if you have a little bit of a oops, you're going to make sure it recovers really rapidly. So take take your more productive lands because it's it has the greatest opportunity, you know, to to to, to have a positive return early. Have it something that you can manage well, but make sure it's that's a scale that you can manage successfully. The key thing is just get started. There's not a there's not a finish line. There's not a race. It's just get started because it makes a difference to the land. It makes a difference to the livestock. It makes a difference to the people on the land. So I'd leave it with that. It's just to say, do it because it's not only better for you, but it's better for the land and all those that live in our country. Hugh Aljo, Noble Research Institute. Thanks for coming on. Well, Colton, Coulter, I appreciate being on here. Anything we can do to, to help you, you just let us know. Come see us.
Thank you. Click subscribe on your streaming platform so you know when the latest episode has dropped. Be the source of knowledge and the maven that other professionals are excited to refer.